1949 in Gloucestershire, he was the son of a local vicar. And there was a long tradition of sending people into the church from his family. But his father's death led the family impoverished, and instead of being sent into the church, Edward Jenner had to be apprenticed to a doctor so that he himself could become a doctor. We may have a picture of him on the screen. I don't know if they're slides. If not, they've come through to the production at Trinity Church email. But um, his skills when he moved to London to be a doctor were recognized. And he was quickly, uh, because of his love of science principally, was actually taken by uh, Captain Cook, uh, who took him on a a trip, uh, his second trip to Australasia. And Jenna went along as sort of the, the doctor there and loved the science but hated the travel. And at the end of that, he decided to move back home to a rural environment of Gloucestershire just to become a, a local doctor in a village. Now, he loved science, as I said. He also loved birds and he used to do all sorts of scientific investigations in his spare time alongside uh, being a doctor. And the great challenge of the day at that time was smallpox. And the smallpox was a particularly virulent disease. And if, uh, if uh, smallpox came through your village, uh, between 20 and 50% of people in the village would be likely to die. It was an incurable disease, and it was vicious. And one day, Edward Jenner heard a dairymaid, a local dairymaid, saying, I shall never have smallpox, for I have had cowpox. And he concluded that smallpox could be avoided if people had been infected with cowpox, which is a relatively mild disease with little harmful effect to humans. So a few months later, Jenna found an outbreak of cowpox locally, and he inoculated a young stable hand with it, and a few months later, that same stable hand was given smallpox. I'll just take a minute just to think about what the risk assessment for doing that these days would look like. Unbelievable, but of course, this was an age where health and safety were not yet discovered. And so Edward Jenner went ahead and did this, and what was found was that the stable hand did not contract smallpox. He failed to catch the more serious disease. Now, Edward Jenner called his new procedure vaccination, from the Latin word for cow, vacca, Despite the possibility of doing so, Edward Jenner refused to make any money whatsoever from his discovery. He inoculated the poor for free. And instead of becoming rich in the process, he actually went bankrupt. He bankrupted himself to make this new treatment available to everybody. What an extraordinary vision of what the Christian faith looks like when put into practice. What I want to draw your attention today is the fact that when Edward Jenner saw something, when he heard something, he recognized it and he took responsibility for it at his own great personal cost. And we live in a world uh, which, in which we, we find this attitude, it's been described as social, by social commentators, sociologists, as competitive victimhood. This is the idea where uh, people, interest groups, or communities compete to show the world that they are more a victim than anybody else. 
in order to amass power for themselves. It's the exact opposite of taking responsibility because it's defined and it desires to create a blame culture. Just the opposite of a responsibility culture. It leads to passivity and it paralyzes others from acting as well. And yet what we see in Edward Jenner is exactly the opposite. We see somebody who took responsibility, didn't seek to blame or push responsibility elsewhere, but took it upon himself. And if we're going to see the vision of a church on fire and a city alive in our day, in this city, in our time, it's going to take many Edward Jenners, people who hear and see and take responsibility under God. And this, I contend today, begins in Prayer. It begins in prayer. Now, the first figure in the Bible to display, I believe, the attitude that we see in Edward Jenner in this moment, the first figure we see is Abraham, who hears of a situation, as we've had read through us, he hears of a situation in which uh, God shares his plan, or at least his notional plan, to wipe out the, the town, the city of Sodom, because of the grievous evil that's been done in that place. And Abraham hears of this in the same way that uh, Edward Jenner heard. And Abraham responds, and his response is fascinating. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who sadly died just last week, who's one of my personal heroes, and from whom, I, I just let me level with you, from whom the majority of the insight in this sermon originate. He said this, for the first time with Abraham, a human being challenges God himself on a matter of justice. This is what we read in the text that Amy's just read, faultlessly, darling, I must say. Then Abraham approached him and said, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of the, all the earth do right? In other words, what we see happening in Genesis 18 is, is Abraham entering into a lengthy negotiation with God, the living God. First for 50, then for 45, then for 40, it's like... Uh, an episode of Homes Under the Hammer or something similar like that. And finally, 10 righteous people. He saves the city on the basis of 10 righteous people. He changes God's mind. He has the guts, the, the compassion, the bravery, the faith to begin a negotiation, a negotiation with the living God for the sake of a wicked city. He enters into what Jonathan Sachs calls an argument with heaven. For the sake of heaven. For heaven's sake. Do you see what Abraham is doing? He is taking responsibility in this moment. He's acting in this moment. Not sitting on his hands, not waiting for somebody else to act, but taking the responsibility on the basis of what he has heard, on the basis of what he sees. And he does it. And here's the key link. He does it by entering into conversation with God. That's how it begins. He enters into conversation with God. This is prayer. This is intercession. 
John Tyson, pastor from New York, says, intercession is leveraging our intimacy with God for the sake of others. Intercession is leveraging our intimacy with God for the sake of others. I thank John Tyson for that. I thank Katie White for reminding us of that text, of that uh, quote last week. It's leveraging our intimacy with God for the sake of others. This is exactly what Abraham does. Why and how has he got the, the guts, as I said, to do this before God? Is he stupid? Is he brave? Is he compassionate? Well, probably all of the above, but he also, I believe, the fundamental thing is he knows God. He's intimately connected to God's character so much so that he is able on the basis of his intimate knowledge of God, his growing intimate knowledge of God, to risk everything for the sake of the other. He takes responsibility out of his intimacy with God. Begins, it originates in prayer, in relationship. You see, intercession is relational. It's dynamic, it's personal. And in doing so, as Jonathan Sachs suggests, Abraham stands out from the early chapters of Genesis. See, what we've seen in Genesis is at least three examples so far of people failing to do just what Abraham does, failing to take responsibility when they have the opportunity. The first example is with Adam and Eve. They fail to take personal responsibility in the Garden of Eden. Adam... Uh, when he's caught eating the fruit, he, he blames his wife, Eve, doesn't he? God confronts him and he says, it wasn't me, it was her. She told me to do it. It wasn't me. It, wasn't me. <laughs> it was her. It was her fault. It wasn't my fault. It was her fault. And then Eve is confronted. God looks at her and says, well, is this true? And she says, it wasn't me. It was the serpent. They both shift the blame. They, they say it wasn't me. They, they refuse to take personal responsibility. The second story is of Cain, their own son. He's a chip off the old block. He's learned the same strategy. And he, in the first example of sibling rivalry, he murders his own brother Abel. And when God confronts him, he doesn't deny personal responsibility as his parents have done. He doesn't say it wasn't me, but he says, am I my brother's keeper? In other words, he denies moral responsibility. He says, I don't have responsibility for my brother. Why should I care about the welfare of my brother? He denies moral responsibility. And then we have a third example. And this is going to hurt so many of you. It's going to hurt many of you who've grown up in the church and been a part of Sunday school. But uh, Jonathan Sachs suggests, and there I am, hiding under his uh, authority, he suggests that Noah is also an example of somebody who failed to take responsibility. Now how? How could this be when he's described in the Bible as a righteous man, perfect in his generation? It says that Noah walked with God. No other figure in the Old Testament received such praise. How can Noah be an example of somebody who failed to take responsibility? Well, when faced with the news of the kind that Abraham receives, that not only Sodom, but the whole of the creation or all humankind are going to be wiped out, Noah responds in quite a different way to Abraham. This is what Jonathan Sachs says. We may have this quote available. What does Noah say to God when the decree is issued that the world is about to perish? What does he say when he's told to make an ark to save himself and his family? 
What does he say as the rain begins to fall? The answer is nothing. During the whole sequence of events, Noah is not reported as saying a single word. Instead, we read four times of his silent obedience. Noah is the paradigm of biblical obedience. He does as he is commanded. What his story tells us is that obedience is not enough. And if I had a mic in my hand, I would drop it right now. Jonathan Sachs goes on to say this. It is reasonable suggest, to suggest that in the life of faith, obedience is the highest virtue. In Judaism, it is not. I would say in Christianity, it is not. One of the strongest features of biblical Hebrew is that despite the fact that Torah, that is the, uh, the law, the Old Testament law, contains 613 commands. That's a lot of commands, folks. There is no word for obey. Instead, the verb the Torah uses is shema, to listen, hear, attend, understand, internalize, respond. What God is seeking is not a people, in other words, who will just do as they're told, follow the instructions, and then clock off at the end of the day. What God is seeking is a people who will hear and will see and will imaginatively and creatively partner with him in the transformation of the world around them, leveraging their own intimacy to enter into conversation and collaboration and partnership with the living God. In other words, what we see in Noah is not a sin of commission. In other words, not a sin of doing the wrong thing, but a sin of omission, a sin of not doing enough. His is a failure of corporate or collective responsibility. Sachs says this. He was a man of virtue in an age of vice. By the way, there's value in that. But he made no impact on his contemporaries. He was not a leader. Contrast this with Abraham, who fought a war to rescue his nephew and prayed for the people of the plain, even though he knew they were wicked. And I bring you my final Jonathan Sachs quote. What might an Abraham not have said when confronted with the possibility of a flood? What if there are 50 righteous people? What if there are 10? Abraham might have saved the world. Noah only saved himself and his family. Abraham might have failed, but Noah, Noah did not even try. As Sachs has said in my actual final quote, and get this, this, this is a bomb that's about to go off. When it comes to rebuilding a shattered world, you do not wait for permission. What do you do? You take responsibility. You see, you listen, you shema, you listen, you hear, you internalize, you process, you digest, and you begin a conversation with God for the benefit of others. It begins in prayer. It begins in a to and fro with the living God. Maybe, dare I suggest, even an argument with the living God, if Abraham's to be our paradigm. It's a posture of taking responsibility. 
It assumes intimacy, a growing intimacy, a a growing connection, and it creates a growing intimacy with God because, you see, it's as we step out in becoming the answer to our own prayers that we develop an even deeper communion and connection with the living God. Abraham knew God. Uh, As the scripture said, Abraham believed God, and God reckoned it to him as righteousness. Perhaps what we see in Noah is not only a failure of activity, but fundamentally a failure of intimacy. He knew God well enough to hear the instruction, but not well enough to understand God's heart and his character. You know, it isn't enough just to read the words on the page of the Bible and just sort of dutifully do them. What God is looking is for a people who who internalize, who chew, who digest the truth, and who live it out in creative ways in the midst of a broken and hurting world, a shattered world. Not a people who wait for permission, as it were, from some external authority, but a people who, with God and with other brothers and sisters, begin to imagine a better world and build it within the ruins of the old. A people who believe in a vision of a church on fire and a city alive and are willing to sacrifice even their own autonomy, even their own comfort in order to see it. People who have a vision for the renewal and the revival of a church and the restoration and the rebuilding of a society so that every person might flourish again. A holy people full of fire and love, fueled by the love of God in intimacy and thrown out under the power of the Spirit into the world where they dare to see great things because God is a great God. This vision will not take place with a generation of Noah's of holy recluses who perhaps seek to save their own. We need a generation of Abrahams. We need a generation of Sarahs. We need a generation of Edward Jenners. We have to learn to take responsibility for the situation around us as we see it. We can't wait for somebody else, and we cannot wait for the institutional church either. If God is speaking to you, The answer might not be to email the church. The answer might be to collaborate with him. The answer may be to email the church. But what is God calling you to do? Begin a conversation with him today. It begins in intimacy. It begins in responding to him. Just the other day, uh, Joanne Arton, our own worship leader, uh, whose birthday is today, sent her a text. She was telling a story at our staff meeting about how a year ago, she and Luca, another member of our church, on our Wednesday prayer on the streets, uh, just went into the city center and were sitting outside a cafe. And they saw a lady there. And they, they entered into a conversation with this lady and they asked if they could buy her a coffee. And, and they did and they bought her some porridge and they shared a meal together sitting outside this cafe. Didn't need to socially distance in these days. This was in the good old days, BC, before COVID. And there they were just enjoying one another. And this lady began to open up and she was addicted to drugs and she was in a a relationship in which she was being uh, physically abused. And they uh, conversed with her and they prayed for her. And that's the last time they saw her. And just a, a week or so ago, around a year since this happened, Joanne was walking into the same coffee shop and she saw... The lady she recognized as the same lady from the first conversation a year before, only she looked entirely different. And as they queued up for their takeaway coffee, they recognized each other. This lady recognized Joanne, and the lady began to share. She said, look, I I have to tell you what's happened. 
I'm off drugs. I'm no longer using alcohol. I left that guy who was abusing me. I'm going to church every week, and here I am buying coffee with my own money. Wow. Amazing, isn't it? Praise God. Praise God. What would have happened if Joanne and Luca hadn't had that conversation, if they hadn't begun the conversation with God on the basis of the, this other person, if they hadn't, hadn't leveraged their own intimacy with God? Church is no good walking around the center of the city if we're not willing to share what God has put in us. Leverage our own connection with him for the basis, for the good of the other. This woman's life has changed. I believe that began in that moment. I think she believes that too. What is God calling you to do? This month is a month of prayer. Do you need to go deeper in intimacy? Maybe so. There's loads of ways you can do that, but maybe you need to begin to leverage your intimacy in intercession, in prayer for others, because God has great plans to rebuild our shattered world, and he's waiting for you and I to join him. Why don't we pray?